PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to the Craigcast from Physical Therapy. Each month, PTJ Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Rebecca Craig, offers her take on the articles appearing in this month's PTJ. Here is Rebecca Craig. Hello, this is Becky Craig, Editor-in-Chief, and I am delighted to welcome you to the December issue of Physical Therapy. Before we start talking about this incredibly exciting issue, I want to remind you all that if you go to the website of the journal, you'll see that there's a new podcast posted. This podcast is the 2014 Rothstein Roundtable discussion of interprofessionalism, led by Dr. Anthony Galito from the University of Pittsburgh. It's really an interesting discussion and talks about how to most effectively create interprofessionalism for our students. Now, on to this great, great issue. I would say a theme of the issue is certainly exercise, which shouldn't be surprising, but the emphasis on exercise in the articles is really wonderful to see. The first paper is entitled Effectiveness of Exercise Therapy in Treatment of Patients with Patellofemoral Pain Syndrome. This is a systematic review and a meta-analysis. The first author is Ron Kalijan. He and his colleagues are from several places in Switzerland, including the University of Applied Sciences and Arts of Southern Switzerland in Landquart, University College Physiotherapy, Bern University of Applied Sciences in Bern. This is a wonderful description of whether or not exercise alleviates pain syndrome in persons with patellofemoral pain syndrome. The authors were able to identify randomized controlled trials in both English and German, so that increased their sample a bit. They ended up with 15 studies that they could use to determine whether or not exercise therapy reduced pain and patient-reported measures of activity limitations and participation restrictions. The bottom line of their work is that they did see a result in pain reduction and improvement of activity and participation in the 748 participants that were pooled for this meta-analysis. And that happened at 12 weeks when they looked longer at greater than 26 weeks, the only thing that they saw was a continued increase in activity and participation, but the pain was no longer significant. There is a debate among clinicians and scientists about which muscles to exercise in order to reduce patellofemoral pain. And in a sub-analysis of some of the subjects and some of the studies, the authors were able to examine whether hip exercises were more effective than quadricep exercises. And again, although the samples were small in those cases, there didn't appear to be a difference. So this review emphasizes the benefit of exercise, but really leaves us wondering what the specific exercises are that should be done, what the optimal dose should be, and how long the intervention should be. So all those questions related to what actually is the intervention that leads to reduction in pain and increased activity and participation are still up for grabs. I think this is a great beginning, but boy, we need more research in this area. 
The next study is entitled Resistive Inspiratory Muscle Training in People with Spinal Cord Injury During Inpatient Rehabilitation. This is a randomized controlled trial. The lead author is Karen Postma. The authors are from Erasmus MC University Medical Center Rotterdam, Rinden Medical Center, Kenamar Gasthouse, and Radboud University Nijmegen Medical Center. This is what is called a pragmatic trial, and a pragmatic trial differs from an explanatory trial because in a pragmatic trial, basically, one is looking at the effect of an additional intervention as part of routine practice. So the goal of a pragmatic trial is to help decide which treatment is better or which is preferred in the clinical setting. With that in mind, then, one wouldn't be surprised that this study involved 40 persons with spinal cord injury and that some of the patients were motor complete, others were incomplete, some were persons with tetraplasia, others were pers- had paraplasia. So, again, you recognize the range of patients that were included in this trial. As those of you know who have worked with persons with spinal cord injury, Certainly one concern associated with them is pneumonia, difficulty, coughing, so some weakness of respiratory muscles. Now, again, if you remember your anatomy and that the diaphragm is a skeletal muscle, it's not surprising that respiratory problems would be present in certain levels of spinal cord injury. What these authors propose is to do resistive inspiratory muscle training. So basically, try to increase the strength of the muscles involved in inspiration. They provide a wonderful detailed description of the method that they used to provide the strength training. So I encourage you to look at that. It was a training that went over eight weeks and was done five times per day. And again, I really encourage you to read how carefully they've described their intervention. Basically, what they found was that the muscle strength training increased maximal inspiratory pressure on the short-term basis. However, it didn't have an impact on the individual's quality of life. The patients who continued with the training after the intervention was complete demonstrated better maximal inspiratory pressure than those who didn't. So again, there's this question about dose and how long a person should exercise and should exercise become a part of your life rather than just uh, being offered during the physical therapist treatment sessions. So I thank the authors for submitting this paper. The next paper is entitled Effects of Moderate Versus High Intensity Exercise Training on Physical Fitness and Physical Function in people with type 2 diabetes. This is a randomized control trial. The first author is J. David Taylor. And institutions are the University of Central Arkansas, Harding University, and Washington University in St. Louis. This is a very small trial. It has 21 persons with type 2 diabetes who were randomly allocated to either a moderate-intensity training group or high-intensity training group. Certainly, there are lots of guidelines for exercising with persons who have type 2 diabetes. The authors were interested in finding out whether there was a particular dose 
of exercise that was more effective than another. So basically, is it all right to do moderate intensity or do you have to do high intensity in order to get the best outcome? And they kept everything the same in their treatment except for the intensity. So they really were specifically looking at intensity. The exercise was done two times per week over three months. And again, the authors did a very nice job describing both the strengthening component and the aerobic component of this exercise program. So it's a nice template for you all to use. In the end, they really saw improvement in all three outcome measures, which were strength, exercise capacity or capacity, and physical function. But there wasn't a difference between the moderate and the high-intensity group. And I encourage you to read their discussion because it's very thoughtful. There's some literature that suggests that persons may be more adherent to a moderate intensity program so that if there's no difference between a high-intensity and moderate-intensity exercise program, maybe we'll get better cooperation if we emphasize a moderate intensity. However, the authors also say that their high intensity may not have been high enough so that maybe they really weren't looking at moderate versus high intensity, so that may be a problem with the study. So they caution one from drawing any big conclusions except that exercise, whether moderate or high, absolutely improved muscle strength, exercise capacity, and physical function. Now, the part that frustrated me is they also took blood glucose levels before and immediately after exercise, and they report them, but they don't really have a discussion about them. So I would really like to see that part of the paper described in a future publication. The next paper is entitled Pelvic Floor Muscle Rehabilitation in Erectile Dysfunction and Premature Ejaculation. The first author is Pierre Lavoisier. He and his colleagues are from the study of sexual dysfunction located in Lyon, France. This is a paper that I find very interesting because just yesterday I was lecturing about sphincter control and bowel, bladder, and sexual function in persons with spinal cord injury. So it happens that I read this paper at a good time for me. And I think what it emphasizes is that when we think about erectile dysfunction, it's also important to recognize that there's skeletal muscle that's associated with uh, the ability to have an erection. And so the ischiocavernosis and bulbospongiosis are two muscles that you learned about when you were doing your dissection as a physical therapist student and you had to use when doing tests. But these authors are suggesting that perhaps muscle atrophy contributes to erectile dysfunction. It's not so clear what the cause is of premature ejaculation. So these authors also said that they wanted to explore muscle strengthening to see whether there was an impact on premature ejaculation. So they had two separate groups in the study, and this is just an observational study. There were 122 men with isolated erectile dysfunction and 108 men who had premature ejaculation that were included in the study. This is a great article to help you review the anatomy and drugs that are associated with current treatment of both of these conditions. In the United States, at least, Cialis is a common advertisement on television, and that is one of the drugs that's used for erectile dysfunction and for 
premature ejaculation, SSRI, is commonly prescribed. Many of these patients were taking those particular drugs, but the exercise program was examined and its impact on outcomes were looked at. Now, this is one that you get really frustrated with because it's not really clear. I think you would have a very difficult time repeating the intervention that was provided. The patients do the strengthening program with an erection. The patients were injected in order to get an erection that lasted for at least 30 minutes, and during that 30 minutes, there was a combination of voluntary muscle strengthening, electrical stimulation, and vibration. So again, I think the details of the intervention are lacking. The take-home message for those of you who are interested in men's health is certainly if one could use strength training rather than medication or coupled with medication to produce better outcome for men who have erectile dysfunction or premature ejaculation. That's certainly a wonderful area for physical therapists to engage in. The next paper is entitled, Do Maternal Interactive Behaviors Correlate with Developmental Outcome and Mastery Motivation in Toddlers with and Without Motor Delay? The first author is P. Yung Wang. She and her colleagues are from National Taiwan University and Changdeng University, both in Taiwan, and Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado. The study is designed as a sex and mental aged case control study. So there are 22 mother-child dyads of toddlers with motor delay and 22 dyads of sex and mental age matched toddlers. The authors have a really important question that they're asking, and that is, are there differences in maternal behaviors in mothers who have children with motor delay compared to those who are typically developing. What they find is that the mothers of toddlers with motor delay were less interactive during the education sessions with their children than the mothers with the typically developing children. So there was a correlation, remember, not cause and effect. Maternal behavior was significantly correlated with children's development quotient in studies previously. So there's strong evidence to support the importance of environment during the early developing stages, and particularly in children with motor delays. And so the authors really stress the importance of encouraging mothers to understand how important it is for them to engage with their children during the treatment sessions and how important early intervention is. So I think this is a really nice beginning study to document um, I, I, in the effective environment. It's not fair, but mother is, in this case, part of the environment on development. The next paper is entitled Impaired Reactive Stepping Among Patients for Discharge from Inpatient Stroke Rehabilitation. The first author is Elizabeth Ennis, and this is a team of colleagues from a Toronto Rehabilitation Institute in Toronto, Canada, the University of Toronto, Heart and Stroke Foundation, the Brain Sciences Program, and University of Waterloo. So this is really a collaborative effort with many authors contributing. And it is a really interesting paper. So there's been so much attention to falls, particularly in our literature in the past two years, that it's hard to imagine that there's an, a new twist on it. But these authors have done a very nice job talking about 
falls in persons post-stroke. So it's not uncommon for a person to return home after stroke and to fall. And in fact, the rates are reported as high as 73%. So this is not uncommon. And this occurs within the first two months of coming home. What these authors were really interested in looking at was reactive stepping. And this is the most amazing for me because, again, this is an area that I care very much about and I just don't think I got it. But there are patients who score well on the Berg balance scale. There are patients who demonstrate community ambulation gait speed. So, you know, our outcome measures indicate that they should be discharged home. And yet, many of them, as many as 70% of them, need assistance when their balance is disturbed. In order to successfully demonstrate reactive stepping, they need assistance or they have failed capacity to evoke a step freely with either limb or there's a need for multi-step reactions to regain stability. Again, I think it's nice just to clump all that to say that there's an impaired reactive stepping. So the authors obviously encourage clinicians to come up with a good screen to see whether, in fact, persons have a problem with reactive stepping and then suggest that intervention may be the next step for their research and certainly should be considered by the clinicians. What's interesting to me about this is that when they talk about the patient stroke population, they say that maybe we're going to see differences in this impaired reactive stepping in persons post-stroke compared to, for example, just a healthy elderly sample because of the CNS involvement post-stroke. So again, I really enjoyed reading this article and think it's the beginning of exciting research and hopefully immediate clinical intervention. The next paper is entitled Perceived Exercise Barriers Explain Exercise Participation in Australian Women Treated for Breast Cancer Better Than Perceived Exercise Benefits. So basically, the title says it all. The first author is Sheridan Goh from the University of Wollongong in Wollongong, Australia. I can't praise these papers enough this month. This is a really interesting paper. There were 432 women who had been treated for breast cancer. The majority of the women were less than five years, and in fact, 68% of the sample had concluded their treatment within the year. The age range was large from 22 to low 70 years of age, so it's a broad sample. What they were interested in finding out is what are the barriers and what are the benefits to exercising post-breast cancer but they wanted to understand more comprehensively why patients post-treatment for breast cancer, why they failed to exercise. And so their goal was to create a comprehensive list of both barriers and benefits. So please look at tables two for the benefits and look at table three for the barriers, the self-reported barriers. If we look at a benefit like exercise improves my physical health, with an odds ratio of 0.74, what that means is that the respondent who agreed with that barrier was significantly more likely to be active. Now, if we look at the barriers, on the other hand, the barriers list is much longer, and the odds ratio for barriers 
I am not interested in exercise. I feel too weak to exercise. That particular barrier, I feel too weak to exercise, had an odds ratio of 10.97, which means that the odds of not exercising are very high if that's perceived barrier. So this is a spectacular paper for you to read to see, first of all, what potential barriers and benefits are of the patients or the clients that you're serving, and also to help them develop a method to come up with making exercise enjoyable. All right, so we know what the barriers are. We know what the perceived benefits are. What's more important is can we create exercise that's enjoyable for this patient population and enhance adherence. The next paper is entitled Influence of Fear Avoidance Beliefs on Disability in Patients with Subacromial Shoulder Pain in Primary Care. This is a secondary analysis of a previous study. The first author is Thilo Cromer. The authors are from the University of Heidelberg in Heidelberg, Germany and Maastricht University in the Netherlands. Again, this is a great paper. We hear a lot about fear avoidance belief and the fear avoidance belief model associated with low back pain. And so this team was interested in seeing whether fear avoidance belief and catastrophizing were also variables that would show up in persons who had subacromial shoulder pain. So it's a sample of 90 patients, so it's not a huge sample, but it's certainly a substantial sample. And they use the shoulder pain and disability index at baseline and three months follow-up. Not surprisingly, there was a correlation between fear avoidance, meaning catastrophizing, and pain at baseline. They did a great job carefully comparing the results found in the subacromial shoulder pain population to that of low back pain. So the presence of catastrophizing and fear avoidance was there more at baseline than it was at three months. And the pain continued at baseline and into three months. So the authors hypothesized in their discussion about what this could mean. One of the things they suggest is that because the shoulder is more peripheral to the low back, maybe there are ways to compensate for shoulder pain that are not available to compensate for low back pain, and therefore fear avoidance beliefs are higher in the chronic low back pain patient. I cannot do this paper justice. I just really encourage you to read it because I think it really has some thoughtful ways for you to think about treating patients with shoulder disability. The next paper is entitled, An Overview of Five Years of Patient Self-Referral for Physical Therapy in the Netherlands. The first author is Ilse Schwenkels from the Netherlands Institute for Health Services Research in Utrecht, the Netherlands. The other authors are from Tilburg University and Tilburg in the Netherlands. Self-referral, or what in the United States we call direct access, became available in the Netherlands in 2006. And so this is a paper that basically explores incidence rates of back, shoulder, and neck pain in general practice from 2004 to 2009. All right, so they're looking at linear trends. And again, I think this is useful as a reference model for direct access in the United States. It's a descriptive study, 
and what is seen is basically direct access did not have a huge impact on increasing or decreasing the number of patients seen by these physical therapists. So I think it's a good support for direct access in this country. The next paper is entitled Integrating Aerobic Training Within Subacute Stroke Rehabilitation, a Feasibility Study by Lewis Biasen from Toronto Rehabilitation Institute, University of Toronto, and colleagues also from Canadian Partnership for Stroke Recovery and the University of Waterloo in Canada. There is lots of literature that suggests that persons post-stroke are deconditioned. So what these authors attempted to do is integrate aerobic training within subacute rehab, which I think is so exciting. So this is a translational paper, authors attempting to take the literature and use it in clinical practice. They provide the opportunity for persons to enroll in a group delivery model of aerobic training. And so they talk about the experience, the way that they set it up. They looked at class attendance, adherence, and participation perception. Now, what I think is most interesting about it is that they were not able to recruit a lot of patients because of cardiac comorbidities. And so that's sort of the next challenge for them is how do you bring patients in who have cardiac precautions and still have a large enough group to emphasize integrating aerobic training in the subacute. So I think this is a really interesting paper, and I thank the authors for taking this on. The next paper is a case report entitled Integrating Spanish Language Training Across a Doctor of Physical Therapy Curriculum, a case report of one program's evolving model. The first author is Celia Pichak. She's from the University of Texas at El Paso. This is a description, as the title says, that is an evolving model where the faculty members attempted not just to have an elective in Spanish or a requirement that certain medical words were memorized before graduation. They really attempted to integrate Spanish language training across the curriculum. So I encourage those of you who are in academia and interested in incorporating other languages into your curriculum to look at this case report. It's very thoughtfully done. The final paper is a perspective. The title of this paper is Chronic Stress, Cortisol, Dysfunction, and Pain, a Psychoneuroendocrine Rationale for Stress Management and Pain Rehabilitation. The authors are Kara Hannibal and Mark Bishop from the University of Florida. This is extremely well-written, and what they're basically saying, if you look at the literature related to stress and how stress affects the body, and particularly related to release of cortisol and other circulating, I'm going to say, hormones. And you look at pain and the effect that pain has on the body, there's a parallel. And so what these authors carefully describe and justify is that as a physical therapist, when we're screening or we're collecting history or we're doing our examination and evaluation, it's not just the pain that the person is perceiving, it's what else is going on with their life. Are there stressors in their life? Because those stressors may, in fact, interfere with treatment outcome and present with a chronic disability. 
So what they really are arguing is pay more attention to the whole patient in order to get better outcomes in treating persons with pain. It's a great way to end this incredible issue. So I thank all the authors this month. This was absolutely spectacular. I wish you all a really very, very happy New Year. Thanks for listening. If you have a question for Dr. Craig, email ptj at apta.org. And be sure to include Craigcast in the subject line. This has been a production of APTA.